Hi, and welcome to Bustles and Broadswords, where I tell you all about women of swords throughout history. I'm Claire, a curator, art historian, and fencer, also a massive lesbian who likes finding other women loving women. Not just on dating apps, but you know, in history. But sometimes they find me. And no, this isn't a lesbian ghost haunting situation. For once. One night, I was casually looking up fencing uniforms for women from the early 20th century. I mean, what else am I supposed to do with my free time, right? When suddenly, I see her. Staring at me from a 1900s newspaper cutting in a pair of fetching fencing breeches. My historical gaydar pings. And as I do more research, it's blaring full steam ahead. I have just found out about a lesbian fencer from the early 1900s, and I wasn't even looking for one. <laughs> It's 1898 at the military gymnasium of the army camp in Aldershot. I have no idea where that is, but it's presumably somewhere in the United Kingdom. This headstrong woman makes her way onto the fencing piece. She's tall, dark hair scraped back into a bun, with a determined, steely gaze. The weightlifting she does alongside her tennis playing make her a commanding presence, with killer arms. She strides along to her competition for her first salute, not in a skirt like the other women fencers present, but in a gleaming white tunic with breeches to match. At this stage, she's already beaten her scheduled opponents on the women's side. In a few moments, she'll take on the army sergeant managing the competition and beat him as well. Because this isn't just any fencer. She's a champion swordswoman she would later become leader of an all-women's ambulance squad during World War I, and she would be at the heart of a 1920s lesbian book scandal. This is Tupi Lauther. At this stage, Tupi Lauza is only 24, and she is not messing around. Her name is one she adopted instead of her birth name, May, so that's the one we'll go with. In French, this is the name for a spinning top, twirling incessantly, perfectly balanced, till it eventually, inevitably, runs out of steam. And I don't think Tupi could have found a better name for herself if she tried. Spinning from a science degree at the Sorbonne to the world of sports his drive, passion, and an unpredictable streak. Tupi would have been well known for her tennis playing as well, and reports of her playing maybe give some insight into who she was as a person as well. Brilliant, but erratic. Tupi soon rose to become a skilled tennis player, who evolved from amateurs women's tennis matches to facing contenders across Europe, as well as British tournaments with fanciful names. The only one I knew was Wimbledon. Tupi is committed and competitive, but the passion that perhaps contributed to her success in the first place also led to some major flaws. Here is an excerpt from 40 Years of First Class Tennis, published in the 1920s by George Hilliard, which probably isn't a page-turner for non-tennis players, 
but also does give us some insight into her personality. So I'm going to try and make this passage as sexy as possible. Here is the extraordinary case of a player whose, oh boy, whose potentialities were greater than any other English lady who ever walked onto a court, but who, unfortunately, was saddled with a temperament which was so hopelessly unsuitable to lawn tennis that it reduced her play. This feels like polite tennis playing language for she broke her tennis racket at the end of every match out of sheer rage. But what do I know? <laughs> Certainly nothing about tennis. There's a racket and there's a ball and there's a net. That's the extent of my knowledge. But hey, don't worry about Tupi too much because, as we know, there is a second sport she excelled at, which perhaps not only suited her hot-headedness, but also made her thrive. So let's have a short fun recap on women's fencing in the 19th century. The earliest records we have of fencing manuals show women in them, as early as 14th century Europe. And women picked up sports for battle or for casual civilian bloodshed even earlier than that. So the idea of a lack of organised women's fencing in a sports capacity before the 19th century doesn't mean it didn't exist beforehand, and certainly not that women were not capable of fencing nor willing to learn. More that records were lacking, and that there was more widespread lack of access for many women. That access widened somewhat in the 19th century. More or less, it would have been easier for upper-class women like Tupi to take part in the sport, as early as the age of 15 in her case. Ten years later, we have records of her refereeing a women's fencing match at Macpherson's Gymnasium on Sloane Street in London, the very place she learnt to take up arms at a time in which women's fencing clubs would be more popularised. But while men's fencing was admitted at the Olympic Games from 1896, women had to wait till 1924, which sucks. But did not prevent women from just saying, well, screw you all, and organising their own matches, adding a layer of competition to a sport which was often seen fit for women as an upper-class pastime, destined for fitness and elegance, rather than, you know learning how to hit people with swords. You guessed it, the people spouting this condescending stuff were mostly men. It was seen as a noble art for girls from well-to-do families, and definitely blended in with a form of entertainment for audiences at the time. Not that one interest in entertainment and elegance could not align with another in terms of sports skills. I spoke on previous podcasts about Johann Hartel's women's fencing class, founded in 1873, which aimed to train dancers and actresses in the proper use of weaponry as props in fight choreographies, and they developed such an interest and skill that the group ended up touring across Europe and the US doing fencing demonstrations. That episode, by the way, is the one on Ella Hatan, aka La Haguarina. It should be just before this one <laughs> in the hierarchy of how I'm intending to release all of these. Reading the press of the end of the 19th century, reveals a kind of amused, again, very condescending fascination with the idea of women fencing, in a sense it could be tolerated if it stayed within the confines of a certain status quo. An 1888 review of a demonstration that this Viennese women's fencing group did in Paris notes that they have different colour uniforms which are both elegant and chaste, with a light skirt, but also the same review spends way too much time talking about how exciting it is when their skirts lift up. Because this is the 19th century, 
So it's both really prude and really sexual. I mean, people are overwhelmed with the idea of a bit of leg showing, but also there's lots of underlying erotica and, and sexy stuff that's within the visual culture at the time. A lot of 19th century imagery actually shows fencing women in various elegant fencing outfits, as well as more sexualized pin-up poses with outfits that you definitely don't want to wear when you're facing the sharp end of a sword. The language is coy, either seeing fencing as a leisurely pastime rather than a real sporting career for women, or viewing any fencing woman as dominated by her passion, trying to fulfil or replace men in some way by taking up arms, leading to more than a few homoerotic postcards of women prodding each other with swords, or pictures of threatening sword-wielding women who might kick men's butts. My favourite is a 1905 postcard that shows a woman fencer, with the caption, Just you try and break up with her now. It's weird, infantilizing language that, under the guise of jokes, sees women taking up what is seen as a traditionally masculine activity at the time as a threat if things are taken into competitive territory beyond the realm of beauty and fitness. And most of all, it was seen as the latest fashion in its popularity, not the start of a women's sport in its own right. Just listen to this extract from this article from 1897 regarding a lady who fences. Whatever fencing may be to her in the future, today it is simply a fad of the hour. Undoubtedly, it will add to her strength, give her more grace, make her even more beautiful and winning than she is. But with all that, it cannot make a man of her. Ugh. So when Tupi overhears fencing master Captain Alfred Hutton make a condescending comment along the same lines about the ability of women fencers, she's like, say that again, to my face. She challenges him to a duel. At this stage, she'd quickly risen to prominence, be named the champion fencer of the UK, and if she could beat women opponents, she could also beat male twerps who thought a woman could never lay a finger on them. Tupi says, screw your status quo. I can fight as well as a man. In fact, any woman can. And they can wear practical clothing while doing so as well. Up to this point, women fencers would have worn either skirts or bloomers, which in itself is perfectly doable. I mean, I draw women fencing comfortably in skirts. I'm a huge advocate of full-on dueling in ball gowns, and the skirts that would have been worn would have been cut more like cycling skirts meant for sports in the first place. Bloomers, which I can only describe as fantastically poofy pants, are also great as an alternative to big heavy skirts, and have an awesome feminist history behind them. But just like skirts with pockets big enough to fit a phone, it's nice to have options. And Tupi Lauda was like, I want that. I want options. Enter the breeches, like male fences at the time. Essentially trousers that stopped at the knee, held up by suspenders, and allowing for some serious leg and knee-high socks action. It's a look. And it's a good look. Tupi wasn't the first woman to wear breeches in fencing. Other women fencers like Lady Colin Campbell would adopt the outfit, with black silk breeches, a silk shirt, and a narrow corset belt with a soft grey or black jacket, black stockings, and silver buckled shoes. Now that is very stylish. Which brings us back to that gymnasium in Aldershot. 
Tupi knows that the rules around men and women in sports and in society alike are unfair, and she's intent on breaking them. And she'll do so while being her own brash, headstrong self. We do not know how Tupi presented herself to the world outside of her sports outfits at that time, by the turn of the century, when we see her in that newspaper article from the 1900s, posing proudly and defiantly in her breeches, foil blade at the ready, as if to say, oh, you don't like this? Well, beat me first, then we'll talk. But what we do know is that she would later on find her lesbian community in which her trouser wearing blend into her everyday life. It's possible that even then she's experimenting with what she could and could not get away with, and how she could embrace a more masculine appearance as a lesbian, gender non-performing woman in life and in sports alike. And Tupi does make a difference. She's interviewed and talked about a lot at the time. She's admired by her peers. She's showing fencing women's value and skill. But we can imagine that this whole situation feels frustrating to a woman who knows she can't officially aspire to be on the same sports level as men as they go on to compete in the Olympics and she's left behind in Aldershot. Maybe it ended up being too much, despite the trail she blazed. Because by the time women fencers had the right to compete in the Olympics in 1924, she had retired from the sport more than a decade earlier. The barriers she faced and aimed to destroy and her outspokenness about taking on men could have prompted her to take part in the suffragette movement. And there are some allegations she did so. Unfortunately, we have no way to confirm or deny this. Only a single link. The fact that she, like many suffragettes, was a practitioner of jiu-jitsu. Because, of course she was. Jiu-jitsu instructor Edith Margaret Garrett, one of the first martial arts women instructors in Europe at the time, practicing jiu-jitsu alongside her husband, started a self-defense club from 1908 onwards for the Women's Social and Political Union, a women-only organization that would become known as the Suffragettes. The WSPU's fight for women's suffrage extended from 1903 to 1918, and their protests included civil disobedience and direct action at public events, vandalism, and arson. During that period, many imprisoned women went on hunger strikes as protest and were subject to horrible treatment, including force feeding, as well as intense violence and harassment by the police during these arrests. In 1913, the Cat and Mouse Act meant the suffragettes on hunger strikes were no longer force-fed. Instead, they were left on strike till they were very weak, then legally released, left outside of jail for a period long enough for them to recover, and then re-arrested on the same charge they had originally been arrested for. The WSPU were like, oh, wow, wrong move. We're going to make you regret that. They form a protection unit of 30 women called the Bodyguard also known as the Jiu-Jitsu Suffragettes, and, obviously, my favourite nickname, the Amazons. Their role is to protect suffragettes who have been released to prevent re-arrest. Edith not only teaches them Jiu-Jitsu to do so, but also trains them to use a variety of weapons, such as Indian clubs. 
she conducted secret lessons, and the unit engaged in combat with the police in events such as the raid on Buckingham Palace in May 1914, and the media coined the term Sufrajitsu. Was Tupi part of this crew? Like I said, no proof. Most of what I have seen is completely unsourced, which, as all historians know, will get you banished from the Guild of Serious Historians. But there's a silver lining. She benefited from a suffragette fictional reinterpretation as a member of the cast of characters in the graphic novel Sufrajitsu by Tony Wolfe, in which she is none other than the leader of the bodyguard unit. It's obviously not historically accurate, but it's an interesting look into Lauza's fictional reinterpretation. Ultimately, Tupi does not need to be part of the suffragettes to be an interesting figure in her own right. But this cultural legacy and how she ended up in this comic book is an interesting link with Jujitsu and the suffragettes. And what comes next is an interesting segue into the events of World War I, since after war breaks out, the bodyguard unit is disbanded. This is because the leader of the suffragettes, Emmeline Pankhurst, had suspended militant suffragette acts and mobilised the WSPU in favour of the war effort. This translated into Pankhurst's involvement in the White Feather movement, giving feathers to men who would not enlist for war. A sign of what Pankhurst saw as cowardice rather than a refusal or inability to take part in a war that would kill so many soldiers and injure and traumatise many others. So let's just remember this, just as we remember the suffragettes. Just as we should remember how they excluded black women and women of colour from the movement, and attempted to erase the lesbian and bisexual women at its core. Amongst them, none other than Emmeline Pankhurst's own daughter, Christabel. Regardless of what people like Emmeline Pankhurst thought, so many people had a lot of valid reasons to avoid taking part in the war, like, you know, it's a war and they're pacifists and they don't want to kill people, or die. But Tupi wanted to take part, and she wanted to be on the front lines. At the time, women were not technically able to enrol as soldiers. Not that that prevented many women who were able to find a way around the rule. Like Flora Sandys, a British woman who was an officer of the Royal Serbian Army, after initially starting out as an ambulance volunteer deployed in Serbia. On the French side, Marie Marvin, dressed as a man to fight on the front, was involved in flying combat missions, and was a nurse. And prototyped the first air ambulance, just to, you know, round things off. And she was also a fencer. <laughs> They're everywhere. We also have accounts of Maria Leontievna Bochkareva, a Russian soldier who led her own battalion of women soldiers called the Women's Battalion of Death, which, sure, existed as a propaganda tool to shame men into taking part in war because, according to their rationale, quote, if a woman can fight, so could they. But condescending comments aside, which seem linked to whatever women tried to do at the time, fence, wear trousers, breathe, they were still doing the thing. And let's not forget that these are only the records we have, that many women may have fought and died dressed as men at the front without having their accomplishments documented. But in the wider context of the front lines, while women could not always openly fight in the literal sense, they are nonetheless definitely involved in conflict. And the women I just mentioned give you a little clue in the variety of roles they took on, as soldiers, but often also 
as medical units. These would be close to the front, often in dangerous, life-threatening conditions. And many would involve volunteers in their ambulance units who would have been considered unfit, in brackets, for fighting. Too young, too old, or hey, wrong gender. Though often the units composed of women were relegated to support work compared to men's ambulance units on the front lines. And Tupi knows this. Her game plan isn't to translate her sword fighting skills to fighting on the battlefield, but nor is it to serve as a nurse. Her aim is to look at the bigger picture. She wants to form an all-women's ambulance unit that could be on the front lines of the battlefield, exactly on the same terms as men's ambulances. It's 1917. Tupi sends a petition with that very request to the French army, and she formulates this plan carefully not by herself, but with a co-conspirator who also had an insider perspective. This is Nora Desmond Hackett, who at this stage is the director of the Women's Emergency Corps, affiliated with the French Army. The proposal of the unit that she puts forward in collaboration with Tupi is that the unit will be dual purpose. Tupi will lead a group of ambulance drivers providing their own set of cars, and Nora would provide what she had provided up to now with her war service, a canteen section. The fact that she'd already been providing essential work and earned the military decoration of the Croix de Guerre for her troubles no doubt led to the proposal being successful. Tupi now had a mission. Recruit not only a fleet of cars, but women who could drive them. And donations and offers to volunteer started rolling in no doubt helped by Tupi's upper-class connections because owning a car in the early 1900s was not cheap. But also, no doubt helped by her own connection to a whole range of women who, like herself, were interested in traditionally masculine hobbies as they were perceived at the time, like driving cars and being able to repair them. Tupi had actually been tinkering with cars for a while as a driver and mechanic. And that was the prerequisite for this mission. Alongside a lack of direct attachment to any domestic duties that may have prevented them from going to war in the first place. All the ability to say screw it to those duties, drop everything and go drive some cars in a war zone. And we're now in January 1918 in France. Months after this first pledge. A low rumble and roar sounds across the French countryside. It's a fleet load of cars. Different cars, different sizes. But all branded with a red ambulance service cross. 22 cars, with 30 women drivers either behind or beside the wheel. And among them, leading the charge, Tupi Lauda. the range of women she had recruited, only a few had the title of Mrs. Most were unmarried, and many found a sense of community in their driving and tinkering with engines alongside 
fellow women enthusiasts. All this aside, there are rumours of many women in the units not only driving together, but flirting together. In short, there are a fair few women-loving women driving alongside our leading lesbian. I'm not saying it was a lesbian power unit, but you know what? It's my podcast. I can do whatever I want. This is a lesbian power unit. Rumoured sapphic shenanigans aside, not much is known about the women who accompanied Tupi or their personal lives and aspirations. Some remaining photographs show them posing alongside one of the ambulances in army uniform. In their case, a long trench coat and skirt, which would have protected them from the elements, and been practical enough to deal with the hard labour of hauling bodies into ambulances, repairing motors on the go, and driving in the worst conditions you could possibly imagine. These women look tough, determined, and strong. But some pictures show their softer side as well. One picture shows one of them smiling, posing with a small mascot, an adorable little kitten. The story doesn't say if said kitten accompanied them on their missions, but I kind of hope it didn't. A war zone is no place for a kitty cat. So when Tupi arrives with metaphorical guns ablazing with her lesbian power unit, she and Nora are made lieutenants and attached to an army unit, and said lesbian power unit is sent to Kray. This is not the front line, but it's still an active war zone. This is their baptism of fire. Any woman who can't manage the stress of engines breaking down while hauling in the wounded and driving at breakneck speed to the closest army hospital is soon sent home. And what remains isn't a gang of bored rich lesbians looking for a bit of excitement. It's a well-oiled machine, putting in the work, and proving misogynistic naysayers wrong. But this prompts Tupi and others to point out that this is not the front they were promised, where they can do more, if not most, of the life-saving work. So Tupi does what Tupi does best. She challenges the men to call him out on their own sexist bullshit. She goes all the way to the top and drives 50 miles to meet the man at the head of the French military transportation service, confronting him in a meeting with 50 other men on his side. The commandant is very transparent about why they are not at the front. He doesn't want blood on his hands. More specifically, he does not want a bunch of women's blood on his hands, especially if most of them are from the United Kingdom. He's thinking about the diplomatic paperwork with a seasoning of sexist doubt. But Tupi badges him and won't give up. At his wit's end, after all this back and forth and arguing, he asks, am I to send you to your possible death? To which Tupi responds dryly, I am of the opinion that a few women less in the world is of no importance. Bold move, and an efficient one apparently, because a few weeks later, they're deployed to Compiègne, at the front, as a unit at the heart of the battlefield. The opening lines of her statement to the Times in 1919, reporting this experience, is, quite frankly, the last way anyone would describe World War I. It was a wonderful time. We were often 350 yards from the German lines awaiting the wounded under camouflage. But less than a year later, Tupi Lauser's report to the Imperial War Museum on the creation of the ambulance unit reveals something else between the lines of the alleged wonderful time. She describes what the plan had always been. To drive an ambulance under bombardment and shellfire. 
undergo the hardships which field ambulance drivers doing frontline work have to undergo. And here the lines blur in terms of what it meant to be fighting on the battlefield. Tupi and her women were also fighting to save countless lives. And by all accounts, they succeeded. They carried thousands of soldiers across from the battlefield to hospitals. And their willingness to be at the heart of the action and drive into war territory in the worst conditions you can imagine made a difference. The unit proved its point and its value. Any scepticism from higher-ups about their womanhood and the risk they would cause a diplomatic mess if they were killed was dispelled, with Compiègne being the place in which the unit and Tupi received the military honour of the Croix de Guerre. After more than a year and a half in action, Tupi's unit was disbanded in August 1919, prompting her return to the UK. But little did she know that her World War I exploits during that one year and a half would live on in another way, in lesbian legend and literature. So, we're in the 1920s in London. Let's gay crash, or gay crash, I guess, a fancy dress party. Because why not? This is the Roaring Twenties and people are partying. And we have seen Tupi in the thick of World War I and the fencing circuit, but now we find her as the host of said costume party. Presumably living her best life, surrounded by lesbians. Never short of gossip and never short of drama. It would be hard to summarise the social scene for wealthy, usually mainly upper-class lesbians in Paris and London in the 1920s, filled with decadent parties and a lot of writing about one another and painting one another, but Tupi was definitely part of it, using her status and wealth to launch fancy dress balls for her lesbian friends. A popular staple of upper-class lesbian life in the interwar seems to be the Salon, which American Parisian lesbian and poet Natalie Barney was an expert in given she hosted one for about 60 years. So what is a Salon? Usually a weekly event in which people could discuss literature, philosophy, art, Poetry and various authors were hosted. Not to be mistaken with saloon, though admittedly, a lesbian saloon in the Wild West does sound kind of compelling. The salon became a way for lesbians to be able to socialise and meet. So, apparently, Tubi ran her own lesbian salon in the 1920s in London, where she would have met and socialised with a range of fellow women-loving women. Amongst them, Radcliffe Hall and her girlfriend, Lady Una Troubridge. After all, they were close friends with Tupi since they met in 1920. And when you think about rich lesbian eccentrics from that time period, those two probably came to mind. Radcliffe Hall was an English poet and writer. She would become most known for her lesbian novel, The Well of Loneliness. But by the time she met Tupi, that book was not yet written. But don't worry, it's going to play a key part in our story. As for Una... She's a British sculptor and translator. The couple raised Dachshunds together as well as Griffins, the dog, not the mythological creature. So most paintings or photographs of them will have them looking dapper as heck holding dogs. Hall and Trebridge are by no means perfect. We can find them stylish now in those pictures, but they're also the product of a privileged, up-class elite. And Hall later on had anti-Semitic and fascist leanings. 
but they are an important part of the life of interwar lesbian London, and would play a messy, complicated part in Tupi's own life. So in that circle, we also find Natalie Barney, we mentioned before, American playwright, poet and novelist, who's mainly known for her pretty banging Parisian lesbian salons, which attracted a lot of modernist artists. Her poetry is very explicit about her love of women, and she embraced that to the fullest. She was also polyamorous, though not really with her partner's full agreement, which is a bit messy and complicated. Yep, all these lesbians are a mess. What has changed? At this party, one of Natalie's longest relationships may have been there as well. This would be the American painter Romaine Brooks, who would have coincidentally painted a famous portrait of a frontline nurse during World War I, entitled La Croisée, or The Crossed One, as a reference to the Red Cross, as well as, to some extent, maybe the idea of fighting and crusades. This heroic stark figure would have aligned with what Tupi would have experienced, and showed another side of wartime many of these women would have experienced firsthand as well as volunteers. It also expressed a new aspiration for women during the interwar, the idea of the modern woman. The modern woman had either taken on traditionally male-dominated jobs during the war, or benefited from more freedom and agency in general. Women started to reclaim masculine wear, especially the uniform-like aesthetic of service jobs in which women had served, to reclaim public space. And this feminist aspiration ultimately intersected with lesbian aspirations as well. Masculine wear and specific codes, like short hair, smoking and wearing a monocle, became a way, at least for upper-class lesbians, to recognise one another and slowly form more of a community in terms of public spaces and nightlife. And Tupi was a part of it, in the parties she threw and the clothes she wore. It's hard to know if Tupi took up fencing again, and once more donned white breeches since she retired. But, either way, she would have cut a striking figure at the time, in terms of adopting a more masculine fashion and gender expression, which corresponded to the experiences of many of her fellow lesbians, many of which used male nicknames for each other, as well as male pronouns. For example, John is a nickname commonly used to refer to Radcliffe Hall as a term of affection and intimacy by Una, and Tupi was no exception. In fact, Radcliffe and Una have a specific nickname for her, relating to this idea of a lesbian community who found themselves through this identification with masculine codes. Brother. In early 20th century lesbian circles, this would have been common. There is an ongoing tradition of lesbians using male pronouns and male nicknames. They would have gendered themselves as, and write about themselves as women, but their gender expression and identity as lesbians would have also embraced masculine gender expression. What is clear is that early 20th century understandings of what it meant to be a lesbian was conflated in varying degrees with gender expression and even identity. The very general simplified idea being that it was believed at the time, by many people, that attraction to the same gender as a woman was linked to possessing masculine traits. As such, many queer women around this period were able to find identification and comfort around reclaiming masculine fashion, activities and behaviour. This being said, we absolutely need to account for the fact that many of these figures could very well have been experimenting with trans identity without having the language or concept to express what they were feeling. Lesbian histories 
trans men and non-binary people's histories are often very closely linked, as it is sometimes near impossible to guess how many of these figures would have identified today. Although there are also cases in which a person's desire to not be gendered as feminine or masculine in any cases is completely clear-cut and documented as a part of what we would now call their trans identity. The artist Gluck, for example, chose his name and was very clear about having, quote, no suffix and no prefix. So gendering or not gendering Gluck in gender-neutral terms, not using Gluck's rejected birth name, or avoiding pronouns altogether, makes sense. Gluck would have been part of these queer circles and part of this lesbian culture at the time, but resisted being gendered. So, we don't know how early on Tupi adopted trousers in everyday wear, but one thing's for sure, once she did, she went all out. Una was so struck by Tupi wearing a pair of stunning black trousers, it justified an entry in her diary, and I can imagine that the sleek suit and trouser combo was probably what she was wearing when she strolled up to her girlfriend at the time and said, Hey, wanna go on a date? Let's go on a motorcycle ride across the Alps because Tupi also happened to be the first woman to ever ride a motorcycle. At least according to her. <laughs> and considering the first motorcycle was invented in 1885, probably also loved the idea of living a bit more dangerously. In her own accounts, Tupi sets off across the Alps, girlfriend perched on behind her, probably holding on for dear life. This is Fabienne Lafargue de Avila, a French and British writer we probably thought the Alps motorcycling was a great romantic idea at the time, and wasn't sure now, as the damn machine sputtered and stuttered across winding roads. The journey had some bumps, and some of them were far beyond Tupi's control as a driver. She gets arrested at the Franco-Italian border for, quote, dressing as a man. Tupi thinks, first, screw you, but second, fine, I'll wear a skirt on the way back. But on the way back... She's arrested again while she's wearing a skirt, this time for, in quotes, dressing as a woman. <sighs> this gender confusion and misgendering, mingled with transphobic assumptions around what a woman is, quote, supposed to look like, both arrested for being gender non-conforming and then for not being feminine enough in gender-conforming clothing, would have been part of what Tupi would have faced at the time, something she couldn't escape neither in London, nor in the far reaches of the Alps. But back to London. At this stage, Radcliffe, Una and Tupi spent a lot of time together. Una's diaries recall evenings with Tupi and Fabienne and frequent visits to Paris. And here's where it gets interesting. Radcliffe Hall draws from many different experiences and aspects of her life and the people within it to write. So, when Hall's novel The Well of Loneliness is released in 1928, many would have recognised some fragments of a certain friend's own life in a main character, Stephen. A gender non-conforming lesbian, who was a fencer, an accomplished sportswoman, whose interests include jiu-jitsu, tennis playing and driving, and ended up leaving her comfortable English upper-class life to lead an all-women's ambulance unit on the front during World War I in France, becoming a war hero. So, yes, a few similarities there. When I first picked up the book, it was in the used book section of the Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris, 
where I was living at the time, Paris, not the Shakespeare and Company bookstore. Paris is always a lot less glamorous when you've actually lived there as a French person. But anyway, back to that book. The quote on the back struck me and, of course, immediately justified me buying it. It's fine. It was like, it wasn't the first edition. It was like two euros. I would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a vial of prussic acid than this novel. Which, in so many ways, so nicely, and by that I mean horribly, encapsulates the mindset homophobes and transphobes still hold today. You'd rather kill a child than give them a book that could help them explore their feelings or just be more open to love or gender that's different from their own experience? Okay, that's healthy. And that's coming from the same people who enjoy saying, will someone please think about the children? Yeah. The author of this charming quote is James Douglas, and he launches a campaign against the novel, deeming it perverse, because, you know, it has two ladies kissing once. And I mentioned that one night they were not divided. Gasp. Well, one thing that was divided <laughs> was opinion, since on one hand, the outrage shut down publication of the book in the UK, and on the other hand, all this bad publicity fueled demand for it in clandestine printing in France, as well as support from media and other authors in terms of freedom of expression. Copies arriving from France were seized and released by customs because the chair of customs read the book and was like, dudes, this book is fine. Released the books, and then the books were seized again by the police, and this led to a range of legal battles for the publisher. It was a mess. Which is why we're now at court. For, specifically, the obscenity trial for the book in 1928. Now, we don't know whether Tupi was there. In fact, the likeliest scenario is that she was not there. But if she wasn't there in person, her presence as a source of inspiration hung heavily over the trial. Because the trial against the book included the accusing party pinpointing direct mentions of the ambulance unit's ambient lesbianism in the book, inspired by the real-life ambulance unit, saying that in the unit there was many one who was ever a Stephen something that Hall would also have witnessed. Una recounts in her diary that Hall had commented on the perpetual sexual carry-on between members of the same army unit, referring to Tupi's friends, presumably at her salon, once their wartime adventures were behind them. This was seen as offensive by the chief magistrate, Sir Charles Biron, who was ultimately the person who had the power to rule out the book as obscene, because the same unit had obviously been held as, you know, heroes. Here's what he said in the trial. This takes place at the front where, according to the writer of this book, a number of women of position and admirable character who were engaged in driving ambulances in the course of the war were addicted to this vice. This guy's brain was imploding. How could you possibly imply the very same women who had saved lives on the front lines were also decadent lesbians going to hell. The mind is truly boggled. Boggled, I tell you. Hall was outraged, and would later comment, I had written of them as I believed them to have been. Pure, living, courageous, self-sacrificing women, facing death day and night in service of the wounded. Of course, we can appreciate that, according to Una, Hall isn't exactly as reverent and kind when she talks about Tubi's friends previously. Lesbian. Gossip. The 
the final verdict of the trial? Obscenity. And with it, the destruction of any copies on UK territory. But what did Tupi think of all this? Well, there are some allusions to her distancing herself from her usual gender non-conforming style by wearing feminine fashion after the trial. Perhaps to dispel suspicion around what would have been quite a public connection between the fictional lesbian World War I all-women's ambulance unit leading, croix de guerre wielding protagonist, and herself. A reminder that for all of her ability to live more or less openly as a lesbian to some extent, a UK-wide public trial would have caused immense damage to her, at a time in which lesbians were seen as unnatural and immoral. But over time, what seems to have happened is that Tupi fully embraced the portrayal and fully claimed her role as the inspiration for Stephen, which is what perhaps, paradoxically, soured her friendship with Radcliffe Hall. Which is confusing. <laughs> Tupi would have already had access to extracts from the short story Miss Agilvy Finds Herself, which later on inspired The Well of Loneliness, which she also would have known about. It seems pretty obvious that the character of Stephen, with her weightlifting and fencing prowesses alongside her quite literal management of an all-women's ambulance unit during the First World War in France, would have been inspired by Tupi. And yet, Hall claims it was all fictional in her author note, and Una writes first of Tupi's resentment, and then later on that she had acquired the illusion that she had served as a model for Stephen Gordon. So, the end of this friendship is messy, needlessly dramatic, and a bit confusing. Una also doesn't seem to like Tupi a lot. And so, in true lesbian drama fashion, some finer details are lost to history. I would like to say that the end of Tupi's life is a happy one, and that she's symbolically married to Fabienne, and that they live happily ever after. But this is real life, so things are super grim. Get ready. According to Una, she suffered from tuberculosis and alcoholism, saying that at night she railed at God from her window for taking her wife Fabienne Lafargue de Villa from her. In the same account, Una describes Fabienne as promiscuous and cruel, living in a cottage nearby that Tupi owned with her lover Lisa. Una speculates that Fabienne awaits Tupi's death so that she can get her money and refuses Tupi's invitation to stay with her. Whatever the truth, Fabienne was in Tupi's will, as her goddaughter, probably the only way she could have let her anything. Outside of the legal marriage, they would not have been allowed. Either way, Tupi lived the rest of her life in the village of Pulborough, in West Sussex, in southeast England, until her death in 1944. But she decides to go out in a strange and unconventional way. She requests her body to be laid out for four days. After the four days, if doctors confirmed that she was indeed dead, they should cut her jugular vein, cremate her, and scatter the ashes to be swept up by the wind, spinning into a new, unexpected direction till the very end. This story has it all. Fencing, an all-women's ambulance unit, lesbian gossip, gender non-conforming fashion. But what I've really appreciated is getting out of the comfort zone in terms of my own assumptions around what it means to look at women with swords in military history. Tupi, a fencer, did not use her sword on the battlefield. In fact, she did not kill a single person, at least that I know of. 
and many people would argue with me about both her classification as a swordswoman and as a warrior woman, given that she never took up a sword to specifically fight or duel outside of a sports context, nor was part of fighting military personnel. But just like Tupi challenged what she was or wasn't allowed to do, let's also challenge who is or isn't considered a military figure. What this story shows, like so many others, is that so many women may have attempted to help and failed due to lack of access, resources or credibility. And those who succeeded in a traditionally male environment are often shown as exceptions to their gender, different from any other woman out there. But Tupi's ambulance idea would not have succeeded out of sheer determined will, not entirely due to her privilege as a white upper-class woman, though let's face it, that was definitely part of it. She had help from a woman on the inside, and built up a network around her. Tupi had been able to tap into this network of women who could be actively involved in the fray, and who may have also felt what she felt. Powerlessness, frustration, the feeling that they could take part and fight in their own way. And that together, they could prove what they could do. And save the lives of the many men who would have mocked and doubted them in doing so. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Researched, narrated and produced by me, Claire Mead. You can find all the sources, images and recommended reading for this episode in the show notes. The music is Captivated by Her by Cody Martin. You can find all episodes of Bustles and Broadswords anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Bustleswordpod to never miss an update. Or you can follow me at Carmen Claire for general information and rambling around women with swords and LGBTQI history. Stay safe, sword lady lovers, and see you in a future episode.